I think there's a whole lot of awareness of just how unequal and how challenging it is for households to sort of maintain financial stability and avoid the fragility. And and I think I think those realities plus, you know, the increased attention to AI means that there is more of an openness to, well, how could the data plus more complex analytics actually do good? Welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I'm your host, David Reiling. I'm very excited to welcome Melissa Coity today as our guest. Melissa, welcome to the show, and thank you for being on the Next Gen Banker podcast. Oh, thank you, Dave. This is so much fun. I'm glad to be doing this with you. Well, thanks. I love look forward to this. And uh, just for our audience, uh, I'll give you a little background in terms of Melissa. So Melissa is the founder and CEO of FinReg Lab, uh, an innovative center that tests new technologies and data to inform public policy and drive the financial sector towards a responsible and inclusive financial marketplace. She is also the vice chair of the Millican FinTech Advisory Committee, which seeks to educate policymakers and industry stakeholders on the impact of FinTech and its implications on public policy. Melissa has served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for the U.S. Department of Treasury. She was also the Vice President of Policy at the Center for Financial Services Innovation, now known as the Financial Health Network. And so, Melissa, it's great to have you here today. And I would love to just jump in right away. I'm really curious with my entrepreneurial mind is, how did you come up with the idea to start with for FinReg Lab? What, what was the spark <laughs> that said, hey, let's do this? Well, thank you. I, it's, I'm going to slip in at some point in our conversation how long you and I have known each other, too, uh, and where that goes back to. But let me answer that question. I, I stood up FinReg Lab um, after spending, you and me both, my friend, you know, 20 plus years really focused on the needs of uh, underserved communities and individuals who, you know, are challenged in terms of accessing safe and affordable financial products and services. Maybe I will slip it in here now. Um, you and I go back many years, even in looking at uh, prepaid cards. I mean, yep. I think that was early days how you and I got to know each other. I was at CFSI, yep. uh, what's now the Financial Health Network, and we were spending time at conferences together just really I was learning a lot from you about what happens in practice in terms of providing accessible products, in that case, transaction products to uh, lots of people who, you know, need to function and operate in a financial system and need accessible products to make that happen. FinReg Lab uh, is an organization I stood up after spending four and a half years in the U.S. Treasury Department. It was at a point in time when we weren't even using the term fintech. Uh, we were yeah. still referring to non-banks as non-banks. But at the same time, sitting in the Treasury Department and engaging with my regulatory colleagues, we could see the potential, but the potential benefits, but also the uncertainties of using new types of data and emerging technologies in financial services, whether it was offered by a non-bank or a depository. And the punchline here is that 
while we in Treasury and across government had a research arm for looking at systemic risk issues, this is the Office of Financial Research under FSOC, we didn't have any independent source of empirical information to help us policymakers think about what are the potential benefits of a data use case in retail financial services and or a, a new technology that was emerging and what importantly are the limitations and what are the risks and frankly especially for policymakers i think it's really challenging to then determine how do you advance public policy without that fact-based information and so FinReg Lab is the nonprofit organization that I stood up after leaving the Treasury Department to serve, hopefully not just as the one and only research organization, there are others, but definitely one that could provide fairly insightful from a market and policy standpoint, um, timely empirical research, and then importantly, and you know this as well as I do, then to be able to bring all those different stakeholders around the table along with policymakers and say, okay, what do these facts tell us about how we are going to evolve law and regulation so that we're getting the best and the most benefits and importantly, the most inclusion we can possibly achieve while making sure that consumer harms are mitigated as best as possible. Yeah. And I have to tell you, as soon as I, I heard that you were doing this and I'm, I'm like, this is brilliant because it is it's in the data that not sometimes all of the truth lies, but a lot of it does. There's that empirical data to go back to, whether you're that depository institution or you're, you're that consumer advocate. We're all looking at this from a slightly different lens, but the data tells us something and it tells us a lot. And, and particularly when it comes to regulation, which um, people may not understand, is that it's hard. It's hard to make good regulation, to make it fair and to make it inclusionary and so forth. And so to have that database is, is yeah. great. It's just such yeah. a good basis to have that conversation. So yeah, and even getting everybody around the table. I mean, right. we're you know, it's sad but true. We tend to be so polarized, especially when it comes to public policy and policy making. And so, if you can get everybody around the table to say, what are those juggernaut questions around data or technology, and you keep everybody at the table and you keep the dialogue going. You get the research done, and then you keep that conversation going. You build trust and a depth of understanding about where the different parties are coming from. I mean, it doesn't solve everything, but I think it, I think it is an important model, frankly, for you know how we do policy making in a larger scale too. Yeah, definitely. Some people, it's you have to keep that dialogue going. There's no doubt about it. So when I when I think about this, I really kind of I want to touch bases with you in terms of. Um, AI, artificial intelligence. So uh, I'm really curious as to what you're seeing out there. What's piquing your interest? And because you have this data, you have this lens, you're working with fintechs of all kinds. Um, what's of interest today in yeah. AI? Yeah. Well, and it's what's of interest in AI and financial services and where is the work that, you know, would be instructive in financial services, but that it might also be instructive even in other sectors. And a couple sort of top line thoughts there. Um, I can talk about this in more detail, but uh, I think we are all worried about the, the histories of inequality and how much those realities are baked into the data 
and in many respects, data that we naturally turn to and for purposes like credit underwriting, um, how do we make sure that more complex math that may be much harder to understand isn't perpetuating those inequalities? And I think probing that question, especially in a high-risk, highly sensitive area like credit access, will help us start to understand how we make sure that we're not baking in those histories of inequality as we move forward. So that's a big one that's definitely top of our mind. Yeah, that I can believe. So is that, um, I've heard two different responses to that. So from more of the, the market-based players, I could say, hey, when the, the bias is built into the system, you're not efficiently serving a marketplace and therefore it automatically corrects itself. And I'm like, okay, I can sort of see that, but We've also had the system working for years, and there's bias included in that system as well. And so I can't see how it's not baked into the algorithm as well, because um, it's just there. There's going to have to be some adjudication of the data and so forth as to how it's yeah. being used. So AI needs some parental oversight. It ultimately needs regulation. Is that where you think it's headed? Well, I, I just I actually want to take apart what you just said, because uh, we have been thinking about this with the big projects we've had uh, underway now. We're coming up on the second year of a three-year evaluation of uh, machine learning in credit underwriting in these questions. One is, um, you know, if, and we know this, we have, you know, up to 50 million people who have an insufficient credit history uh, a thin file or no file is our shorthand for it. Um, and we know that we have higher incidence of minority populations within that sort of uh, unscorable population. Um, so we know at a minimum we don't have sufficient data to actually accurately credit risk assess populations who we want to make sure, and frankly, who very well may be eligible for credit. We need more data to really sort of understand the credit risk of populations who were excluded. So the more that we look at this and our, our partners in the academic community have done some really important research, the AI and machine learning may be especially helpful for better credit risk assessing, but ultimately the AI and machine learning are going to be responsive to the data that they are trained on. And if your data are insufficient in terms of really understanding a person or a small business, then the AI isn't going to solve anything for you. And so I think underscoring just how important bringing in more inclusive data is, is, is half of it. The other half, though, is answering, I think, what are some basic empirical questions and that are necessary before we move into, okay, do we need to regulate and how do we regulate? They're really complex but very basic questions around, you know, given the different types of machine learning algorithms that are being used or that could be used from simple, you know, XGBoost models to much more complex neural nets, how confident can we be? How much can we trust in the output that they generate? And I don't want to do too much of the talking here because I love our dialogue, but but I, I'll just say this. I think what's really somewhat a, a encouraging in looking at these questions in financial services is the fact that we have laws in place that require people who are using these algorithms to respond to questions of, well, how was a credit decision generated, sure. right? Yep. 
you got to explain it to the consumer. Um, do we see risks of disparate impact? That really is one of a number of ways that you would evaluate fairness. And so these are laws on the books that force some transparency. The work that we're doing is asking empirically, how much confidence can you have in different methods of generating the answers to those questions? Yep. And starting there, we can then, I think, think about, okay, how confident can we be? Do we need changes in our laws and regulations or not? And just to get maybe super nerdy for a moment, and that is- That's good, because I, I thought I was going there already. No, I, I was digging that. <laughs> um, um, it, it almost seems like since you have this um, AI and this machine learning happening, is is there a way to do a feedback loop and to test its level of confidence? Meaning we approved 80% of this population, we really could have approved 83%. Um, why did we miss this difference? If there's a way to back test it somehow, um, again, the more data theoretically you feed into the system, and again, it's got to be good data, which is Absolutely. another kind of question. Absolutely, that's a whole other podcast, my friend. Uh, totally, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you put bad credit data in a credit report, guess what you get? Um, and so, yeah, it would be really interesting to see if it could, in fact, benchmark itself somehow for your accuracy. But let me take you in a different place, because it's really easy, I think, to go down the negatives of, of AI in, in machine learning sometimes. Have you seen anything, and maybe particularly because of the pandemic, maybe accelerate AI for good or machine learning for good? Is there anything that's like, oh, it's refreshing to, that's giving people access? I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I think, I, 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 I might just be making my similar points, but I, as painful as the events from the past year and a half have been, I think, the reality of people struggling, uh, you know, the stimulus uh, payments yep. have helped. But, you know, I think there's a whole lot of awareness of just how unequal and how challenging it is for households to sort of maintain financial stability and avoid yep. their fragility. And and I think, I think those realities... Plus, you know, the increased attention to AI means that there is more of an openness to, well, how could the data plus more complex analytics actually do good? And, yeah. and, and I think there's even, even among people who want to make sure that we are always mitigating the harms to consumers, I think there's an openness to, wait, we got to do this differently and do the math Plus, looking at data, rental data, Fannie Mae just announced, for instance, that they're going to be encouraging and facilitating the use of rental data for mortgage underwriting. I mean, you and I both appreciate like how mortgages are sort of the biggest yeah. asset for most households. Totally. Um, you know, I think I think we've turned a corner, and I think there's recognition pragmatically. We're not going to put the genie back in the bottle, so we need yeah. to figure this part out. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting from my yeah. side. I mean, we see a better mousetrap every day, almost, in terms of all the different models out there. There's a better black box constantly that, you know, a fintech is saying, well, we're better because we can do this. And then we have this angle on it. And so while, you know, that can be fraught with danger, I get it. But the fact is, is all these experiments are happening. Yeah. And it's just the part of the testing that has to take place, I think, to hopefully totally. get to a good conclusion 
with maybe a, a couple of guardrails on the bowling alley to keep us in the right direction. So totally. Every um, time you say that, by the way, the last sort of event that we did together, I, I'm like, oh, I start salivating. Like, oh, who's he hearing from? What do I not know? <laughs> <laughs> we need to. We need to have an open line of what are you? Absolutely, because I, I, I need you. to check with you. Have you heard of these people? Or have, <laughs> I need a. I need a quick reference. I think uh, we actually said that it was an FDIC event, and right. I think we all on the panel were joking everybody calls dave like dave what do you what do you know <laughs> oh my gosh i can tell you every uh we have what we know as stand up um mondays where we're we're going through all the different uh ideas and opportunities that were presented us from the previous week and then we have breakup fridays which like uh, okay these this one came out and we're like oh it's not you it's us you know it's that sort of thing. But, but it's it's uh you know there's at least three week do you, is that, is that right? I mean, cause yeah. I, I'm going to, I know this is a conversation with me, but it's a conversation with you. I mean, you, oh. but you are really an entrepreneur and that you are out there trying to keep up with and understand what the latest mousetraps are and how do they work? And so how do you vet them? I mean, for your audience to hear what's the, yeah. So for us, we have a, I'll call it a unique process, but we have an opportunity filter that we go through um, and for us, being a mission-driven organization, that's really at the forefront. So sometimes it can be easy. You know, if someone comes to us and say, hey, we got this great predatory lending product, you know, it's like, okay, no, thank you. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> call somebody else. Um, and so there, there's just some things that we're going to map out uh, in terms of yeah. – things that are deal killers and things that are very interesting and curious to us. Yeah. Um, and we do a lot of small dollar lending. And so that's a, a space that we have expertise in and credit building is one, another one. And so yeah. we're looking for those things that really fit us well and make for a good partnership uh, with yeah. the FinTech. So that totally yeah. makes sense. That's but great. it's art. It's art. It's not science at this point. I, yeah. I, I mean, I think that about the research projects, the, the, we call them experiments. Um, not always technically experiments, but, you know, the empirical evaluations we do. And I'd love for there to be sort of a straight and obvious model, but it is, I mean, the reality is it's somewhat bespoke and it's, it's experience and having a good team who, yeah. and, you know, trying to make sure you're keeping your eye on what's around the bend. Um, we're actually, you know, when COVID hit, we, we wanted to think about where the technology and data, uh, potential benefits and risks when we anticipate there are going to be a lot of families who are distressed, distressed borrowers yeah. with unsecured credit. Sure. And so it's getting a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, we haven't publicly launched this project yet, but we're going to be doing some work looking at debt repayment plans and really trying to understand and empirically evaluate how you think about constructing those plans that are most humane for the households that are in yeah. them, but then importantly are, you know, structured so that uh, the creditors are being paid back. And where yeah. is that right sweet spot? Exactly. And where can data like cash flow data really be instructive for understanding and being frankly even a little more nimble and dynamic potentially yeah. in how that plan works? So Yeah, and I think that's really important to understand is – um, if you're starting to build that credit history and you can really understand that you have some flexibility in terms of if they missed a payment or they can't make a full payment, but you can give them that extra little levity that helps through that deferment, um, that's just without blowing up your credit risk or your loss models. I mean, that that is so good for the consumer. It's good for the bank. 
to get regulatorily, you know, the regulators yep. to buy into that, that's just, it's healthy for everybody. So, yep. yeah. Yep. Yep. I might be into that project too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we got lots of things to do. So let me yeah, ask you this do. though. Uh, as I, I started to think about our our opportunity filter process and my and the, my team that's doing that in terms of the bankers of 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 old, if you will, I mean we're learning an innovative process. We're learning technology day in and day out. Maybe just how tech savvy does a banker have to be today to really be a banker? Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you that question, but that is something that. Um, we are really probing and thinking about. Um, in fact, we are releasing a paper that captures over 40 interviews and the advisory board that we've had with input from banks, fintechs, uh, technology companies, um, technologists, and consumer advocates. What's the state of machine learning adoption in the financial sector in credit underwriting in particular? And I was saying this to you at the start uh, before we began that, um, you know, we'd all like it to just be the pure math and the empirical understanding. It's so much more than that. There have to be these humans in the middle. And frankly, candidly, I think they are going to have to grow in their sophistication and understand the data science, you know, the computer science and making sure that you've got the right people in the right positions at the right moments to evaluate your use of more complex math. And, and so we talk about this um, a fair bit in this paper and the work overall is gonna be really honing in on that question of who are the right people in the right places at the institution as you are deploying more complex technology. I also, I'm curious, I'd love to hear you react to this. I've been talking more to bigger banks than smaller institutions, but I think there's also realization, at least in the large institutions, that, wait, we might have to readjust who's in charge and what the governance looks like, in addition to like what kind of technical capabilities we need to know. I'm curious if you're picking up any of those kinds of considerations with institutions that you're talking to, too. But it feels like we are in somewhat of a paradigm shift in terms of who needs to be occupying which seats within yeah. the banking sector. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because um, it, it's, an, it, you know, the struggle of trying to understand and internalize what what the math says and what the statistics say, right? And, and really understand that. But once you get to that point of, of understanding and having that knowledge, I think there's, uh, for those on the call who are not so math-based, you you need a uh, a liberal arts, a philosophy, uh, an ethical mindset in which to take a lens to that data and its understanding and really try to understand what impact and effect does it have on different people in different situations? Um, what does it mean? It's just not a pure equation where it comes out and says, you know, 42 is the answer to life, right? Totally. Um, it's just not that easy. It has all sorts of implications. And again, life experiences from young to middle age to old will have different views in regards to what that data says to them. And yeah. those views have got to be heard. And so yeah. the art and the science come come together to, I think, to make a sweet cocktail. Um, but you need the right ingredients to make it all happen. That's so right. And I, I know this is said over and over again, but it's so worthwhile. It's also the diversity of the people in totally. the positions, right? I 
and you, you will all have those aha moments. I wish I had a great example where it's like, oh, wow, I didn't think about that. Yeah. I just didn't. That wasn't in my, you know, in my experience, in my orbit. And so making sure you've got all of those different important perspectives really yep. are key. Um, so I have to tell you from the standpoint of the audience, if you're looking for more information, um, finreglab.org has got some great resources. So go out there. There's a bunch of articles. There's podcasts. I think there's a recommended reading room out there. And so don't overwhelm yourself with all the tech. Uh, just digest it and, and start. I think that is my <laughs> biggest piece of advice for people listening is uh, this is it can get complicated, but look for things that can simplify it because that's just the way to start. Yeah. Oh, all right. So, Thank Melissa, you. our, our I time is that. I know. flying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you I, for I keeping it I just wanted to join you in in making that pitch to your audience. And, and, and truly, I mean this. I would love to hear feedback from your audience. This piece that we're putting out next week, it really is intended to take the data science and translate it into... Uh, text that is accessible for people who didn't, you know, come out of school with a PhD, um, you know, in computer science. So we're, we hope it does that because I do, you know, I, you've said it. I mean, it's going to take lots of different people to sort of make sure we get the adoption of tech and data right. But at the same time, we're all going to have to learn a little more about how these approaches and the math work. And so this is an effort to provide a resource that we hope is helpful. Um, yeah, Definitely. Well, thank you for doing that. And I just have a question, just it's a little tangential to this, but I really think when, to get your opinion on the generations of bankers, at times when I tell my kids of things and I'm like, you know, I see this wrong in the system and they're like, just change it, dad. And I'm like, well, you know, there's a system and a process and they're all like, just change it. Why don't you just change it? And I'm like, well, it just doesn't happen that way. And they're like, oh, you boomer, you never want to change anything. And I'm like, first <laughs> of all, I am not, I'm not I'm, a boomer. <laughs> I'm not a boomer. <laughs> You're not a boomer. I'm looking at you. Yeah. Yeah. Secondly, I got a little more experience in terms of how this works, but, but I mean, their mindset is one of change and change fast. And again, all their information has been at their fingertips their entire life. So I can see where we need a little bit more youth and urgency around the change process. But along with that comes a bit of caution in terms of making sure you do it right. Um, so a little wisdom of the generations that have come before them. But um, I don't know, do you see a, a younger banker as uh, as pushing banking towards a positive direction? I definitely do. Um, I, I, you know, without question, I, I, many, many thoughts come to mind. Um, I think it is, in fact, I, we, we just had somebody who's with CUNA um, actually stay at our house. He's a young gentleman. He's working his way up uh, at CUNA. And, and I love to see, like, you know, he's straddling the world of Venmo and PayPal, uh, but yet sitting in the position of engage with the depository institutions. And so we need more younger motivated people to come in and think about how do we prudently evolve our financial system so that all the benefits and perks of technology and data come to rest, yep. but we still have a safe, you know, a safe yeah, and sounds. sound financial system. Like that's Back. a big deal. It's been a while since we've had a crisis that captured our attention about that, but I can't help but channel my old treasury days. Like, yeah. It's we've got to walk the walk, evolve, but do it prudently. 
So Absolutely. And so for those in the audience who don't know CUNA, if you're from uh, more of a global audience, so CUNA is the National Credit Union Association. Yeah. Um, they are the regulator for credit unions or cooperatives that are uh, regulated uh, institutions here in the U.S. So most of the uh, I'm, you, you've answered this in, in for the most part, but I'm going to give it to you anyways, just to see if there's anything else, any other nugget. And so what do you think the next gen banker looks like? What are those unique skills or qualities or abilities that that are needed in order to make positive change? You know, the one thing I I'll, I don't want to end it on a downer note, but I, I I do think being aware of just how important a safe financial system is. And so, you know, I've got a 16 year old who is ready to sort of see the world move to crypto. Right. You know, but I and he will be a brilliant banker if he so chooses to be. Sure. But he also needs to really understand the financial system and the financial infrastructure. And so finding those kids who, young people, not kids, yep. who are ultimately going to understand both worlds and be able to help us sort of forge the path is an important piece of it. But uh, this has well, been really good. Yeah, Great to chat with you. Thank you so much for being on the Next Gen Banker podcast. It is always great to talk to you. And uh, as I, we always say, gosh, I need to talk to you more often in terms of what's going on. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for your time. Appreciate you. Thanks. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For this episode's musical feature, we are showcasing Daniel Benjamin. Daniel, originally from Berlin, released his LP, Solitarity, in December 2020. He has performed as a solo artist as well as in multiple bands. Daniel's music blends a number of different genres to create an original sound. Here is Every Night I Fall Asleep With Your Smile On My Face from his 2020 release, Solitarity. Forever. Just needed to get my skin to sunrise. I can easily walk in darkness. Every night I fall asleep with your smile on my face. I never wanted you to be perfect. I was just glad you were around A whole mind but just one That was Every Night I Fall Asleep with Your Smile on My Face by Daniel Benjamin. You can find more of Daniel's music at danielbenjamin.bandcap.com. Benjamin is spelled with a Y. If you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Banker podcast, email nextgenbankerpodcast at gmail.com with a link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast. We'll see you soon.